It's one of the problems of being a big fat guy trying to look at what's on your hip to see if the microphone is on. It's good to see everybody this morning. If you're visiting with us, stick around. Let us get to know you a little bit better before you head out to lunch. Uh, there's some things that we need to talk about before we get into the lesson. And the first one, I think, uh, takes priority over anything that we're going to be talking about. David Kinneman was taken to the emergency room this morning during Bible class. He will be admitted to the hospital. We don't know much about what's going on right now. Debbie had to take him. Uh, I just received a text from her before I got up here that they're going to keep him, it sounds like. So what I'd like to do before we get into the announcements, before we even get into the lesson, is have a word of prayer for David. Father, we don't know exactly everything that's going on with David, but we do know that there's challenges in this life, and a lot of them are physical as it pertains to our health, and we know that David's having some struggles right now. We know that that's a stress bringer to family, to loved ones. But God, we just ask that you can be a, a source of comfort to them during this time period, using us uh, as needed to be the help and encouragement to Debbie and to, to David and to Tammy through this. We pray for healing for David, that he can be spending just a short time in the hospital, that the doctors can figure out what's going on and that they can prescribe the correct treatment to him. We'd ask God that you would be with all of those that we know in our hearts and in our minds are also dealing with physical health challenges as well, that you read our hearts now to know who it is that needs your help and needs your healing, that you bless them. And it's in your son's name that we pray this morning. Amen. Upcoming this Saturday, April 30th, is the EBCC Bible Bowl. And Jay Will tells me that anyone that wants to can come at 3 p.m. If you show up at 3 a.m., you will be alone. And it would be a pretty simple Bible Bowl. You'd probably win. But if you're wanting to participate in it, finger foods, bring some finger foods. It's from 3 p.m. until on the book of Genesis, if you're wanting to be here for that. Uh, again, remind everybody that we're doing a cookout at the Folding's House May 13th, RSVP to me so I know how much meat I need to provide, and as always, whenever I do a cookout, I provide the meat, you provide the chairs, and the buns to put them in. Starting June 4th, we're going to start our men's Bible study, 7 a.m. on the first Saturday of every month. We're calling it Rise Up. This is for men, 18 and up. Uh, whoever is wanting to participate, we encourage you to be a part of that. Prayerfully consider how you're wanting to participate in that. That's all I have for announcements. Let's get into the lesson. Here we go. I'm going to start the phrase, you finish it. The more things change... You guys really feel super convicted about that one. Come on, wake up, everybody. The more things change, the more they stay the same. How many of us believe in the truth of that statement? Honestly believe the truth. I'm going to tell you right now, if you're a believer in God and a reader of the Bible, your hand better be in the air because I have read someplace that our time on this earth is not unique, that there is nothing new under the sun. So you better believe the more things change, the more they stay the same. And we tend to think we're special, don't we? Come on. I know that we think we're special. And we are in some ways, but again, we're really not. 
but, and that we think that we have to deal with things that no one else had to deal with. And I'll prove this to you, right? Because over the last two years, how many of us have heard this word before? Unprecedented. Like there's never been a worldwide sickness before. Apparently the flu doesn't count. We live in unheard of times. No one's ever had to go through this. Usually we hear it around election time too, right? Which by the way, just Jeremy's personal opinion on elections, I've yet to see one that's different yet. When you can't split a frog hair between the two people that are running for whatever office, we've got a serious problem here, folks. No time in history has man ever had to face a challenge such as this. We've heard these statements. How many of us have actually used them? Okay. And in terms of specifics, yeah, we might be speaking some truth on this, right? Depending on the situation. Man may have never had to face nuclear annihilation before. You know, I doubt that Jesus was concerned about, you know, the A-bomb dropping on Jerusalem when he was walking around. But man has faced annihilation before, have they not? Man has faced war before. Man has faced difficulties before. And I think it's vital that we recognize this because we're going to gain some assurance here this morning. And the assurances that are gained are coming from the concepts and ideas Peter is going to present to us that our experiences not only are being shared by our brothers and sisters, which we already talked about from 1 Peter, but we look at it from a historical perspective. Peter has told us that we have to choose, and we talked about this in our last lesson two weeks ago, that we're either going to believe eyewitnesses or we're going to believe made-up stories that are brought to us by men. Now, the first couple of verses in our text this morning are going to remind us that this has been a choice that God's people have had to make historically. It is not new. All right, so read with me. 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And we're only going to read through the halfway point of verse 10, because I'm convinced that there's a chapter or paragraph break there in the middle of verse 10 that New American Standard translators did a pretty poor job here of splitting the verses up. 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be maligned, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. Okay. God's people, and hear this clearly here, guys. God's people have always had to be on the lookout 
for people who would lead them away from God. That has been the case since time has been spinning. They've always had to look out for these pseudo-prophets that were going to come with some kind of message, and basically, these pseudo-prophets would be presenting a message that the people wanted to hear. Okay, it wasn't the truth, but it was just what they knew the people wanted to hear. It was false. It was a counterfeit. It was a sham. It was a scam. Okay? And often, when these people would come bringing these messages, they would get paid to bring those messages. And we get examples of this in the scripture, right? You remember Balaam? What was the whole reason Balaam was coming out, riding on the donkey? You know, the donkey that was smarter than him. He got paid to come curse Israel. He was a false prophet. He was doing it for the money. He didn't care about anything else, and God uses that situation to his glory and benefit. But that's just one example in the scriptures. Another example that we get in the scriptures of people coming, saying what the people wanted to hear, getting paid for it, getting some kind of fame, getting some kind of whatever, as they were working it is in Jeremiah, right? Because the people, Jeremiah is telling the people, listen, you're going to get taken to Babylon, and that's God's plan, and that's God's purpose. And prophets would rise up and say, oh, you don't have any clue what you're talking about, man. God's going to destroy the Babylonians in a year. And Jeremiah's response would be, may it be. But here's the deal. If it doesn't happen in your time frame, then we know that you're not from the Lord. You're actually talking out of your own mouth and out of your own heart and your own desire on this. And it's in Jeremiah chapter 23 that we actually get to see what is happening with these people that are coming to God's people and talking to them, right? Turn over there in your Bibles if you're not already there. Let's start in verse 14. This whole chapter has a lot in it, but we're just going to start in verse 14 and work through a little bit here, okay? Also among the prophets of Jerusalem, I have seen a horrible thing. So everything we're about to read is what these prophets are participating in, okay? He says, the committing of adultery and walking in falsehood. They strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one has turned back from his wickedness. All of them have become to me like Sodom and their inhabitants like Gomorrah. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts concerning the prophets, behold, I'm going to feed them wormwood and make them drink poisonous water. For from the prophets of Jerusalem, pollution has gone forth into all the land. Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who are prophesying to you. They are leading you into futility. They speak a vision of their own imagination, not from the mouth of the Lord. They keep saying to those who despise me, the Lord has said you will have peace. And as for everyone who walks in the stubbornness of his own heart, they say calamity will not come upon you. But who has stood in the counsel of the Lord that he should see and hear his word? Who has given heed to his word and listened? Behold, the storm of the Lord has gone forth in wrath, even a whirling tempest. It will swirl down on the head of the wicked. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has performed and carried out the purposes of his heart. In the last days, you will clearly understand it. I did not send these prophets, but they ran. I did not speak to them, but they prophesied. But if they stood in my counsel, then they would have announced my words to my people and would have turned them back from their evil way and from the evil of their deeds. Am I a God who is near, declares the Lord, and not a God far off? Can a man hide himself in hiding places so I do not see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord? 
I have heard what the prophets have said who prophesy falsely in my name, saying, I had a dream, I had a dream. How long? Is there anything in the hearts of the prophets who prophesy falsehood, even these prophets of the deception of their own heart, who intend to make my people forget my name by their dreams, which they relate to one another, just as their fathers forgot my name because of Baal? The prophet who has a dream may relate his dream, but let him who has my word speak my word in truth. What does a straw have in common with grain, declares the Lord? Is not my word like fire and like a hammer which shatters a rock? Notice the breakdown that God gives us here of these types of individuals. First, they have immoral character. All right, verses 14 and following just deals with their immoral character. In verses 16 through 20, Jeremiah tells us that, or God tells us that the message here is one of hope without obedience. You can do whatever you want and nothing bad will ever happen to you. And then he continues on and God says that they're deluded. They're interpreting their own dreams, saying that it's God's word, but it's really their own thought process. And this mentality is seen as basic attitudes that transcend time, Okay. Because how many times have we heard of someone who fits this category? Who falls into this camp? This is not something that only Jeremiah had to deal with in Jerusalem. It's not something that the early Christians had to deal with in their time frame when Peter is writing to them. This goes on and on because here's the deal. How many times do we come into contact with people who despise authority? How many times do we come into contact with people who have corrupt desires? How many times do we come into contact with people who only want to exploit others? How many times have we met a greedy person? There are certain things that aren't locked into a specific timetable here, folks, and they're going to go throughout history, and that is Peter's point. And one of the things that we find great comfort in through all of this is while those things don't change throughout history, guess what else doesn't change? God doesn't change. And God's going to be God. He's going to do him, okay? He's going to be who he is, and he's going to do what he says he's going to do. And so while this behavior of people is not a new problem, and understand that I, I guess I need to clarify here. I'm not saying that specific false teachings aren't new. For instance, I doubt that Peter had to deal with the AD 70 doctrine, for instance. Okay, while these ideas are not new, neither is how God's going to take care of it. You know, when we look at our reading that Robin brought to us this morning, thank you for that, from Exodus. You go to Exodus chapter 34. Let's go back there and look at it real quick. Okay, now in Exodus 33, Moses is speaking with God. And he makes a request of God in verse 18 of chapter 33. He says, I pray you, Lord, show me your glory. And God's answer is really kind of puzzling and kind of tricky to look at because God says, doesn't say, okay, Moses, I'll show you my glory. What God says is, I, will make, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you. So to answer Moses' request of God showing him his glory, God says, I'm just going to show you how good I am. I'm going to let all my goodness come before you. We get into chapter 34, and God is passing by, and the announcement of who he is is proclaimed, which, by the way, this is the most quoted text in the Old Testament. It is repeated more than any other section of the Old Testament, what God's proclamation about 
himself is here. And notice what God says. And I want you to understand, God is not describing who he is. God is describing what he does. These are actions that God is describing. Now, knowing what God does helps us with a real big understanding of who he is. But that's, God is describing his goodness. He is t- telling us what he does. And he says that God is compassionate. God is gracious. God is slow to anger. God is abounding in loving kindness. That God is abounding in truth. And he keeps this loving kindness for thousands. He forgives. And while God does these things over here, for the unrepentant, there's the other side of the coin. Did you notice that? He will forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin, but for the one who does not want to repent, he'll take care of business on this. He will be who he is by doing what he does. He is a God of justice, and he does justice. And he has never, hear me clearly, he has never let the guilty go unpunished. Ever. And while we like to focus on the warm, fuzzy aspects of God, on this whole loving kindness thing and the forgiveness thing and all of these other things that he describes about what he is, we need to understand and embrace the absolute reality that he has also never let the guilty go unpunished. This is the God we serve. He is the God who he has saved. And this, he is the God that Peter is reminding us about in the text. So Peter gives us three examples. They seem like they really have nothing to do with false teachers, but they really do. Because in each of those stories, there's a guilty party. Right? What are they guilty of? Simple, opposition, of God, opposition to God and truth. That's, that's really enough. And they were judged accordingly. But did we also notice that in the, the conversation of judgment and God doing what God said he would do, God being who he said he would be, that Peter continues to remind us that God did this, he'll also make sure we're taken care of. There's also every aspect of rescue and preservation of the righteous in each of these conversations, each of these examples that he's bringing. God knows how to do this because God has done it before. And when he's done it before, he's doing it now. He will do it in the future. This is who he is. You know, and I think for a lot of Christians, we look at these sections of text and we read about the false teachers, we read about false prophets, and, and, and we go, oh man, well, I, this is, I know what a false teacher looks like, right? This is the guy that shows up from outside, goes, hey y'all, how about all of us just be hedonists? Wouldn't that be great? Yeah, okay, we can boot that dude out the door and problem crisis averted, we don't have anything else to worry about. This isn't what Peter is talking about here. This isn't who Peter is talking about. And of course, we're going to come into contact with people like that, but that's not what predominantly happens historically. How do you gain a foothold on a fortress? It 
It's not usually through the front door where you come kicking it in. But you come in secretly. You, you use stealth. Here's a great example of how we've fallen prey to stealth. You guys ready? Guarantee everybody in this room has fallen prey to this. How many of us have ever gone to a restaurant and read the menu? Okay. I know you guys are like, what? Hold on. Hold on. You ever seen on a menu a ridiculously high-priced item? Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Okay. And did you buy that ridiculously high-priced item? Hunter's like, yeah, I did. <laughs> Most people other than Hunter don't. Okay. Do you know why you didn't buy that ridiculously high-priced item, but that restaurant still got a ton of your money? Because they hired a menu engineer. Now, a menu engineer does simple things like helps restaurants maximize revenue by taking advantages of common flaws in human decision-making. Okay, so what they'll do is they'll remove the dollar sign from the prices. You guys notice that on menus? Okay. They'll remove dollar signs from prices because people are less intimidated by just a standard number. But the minute you put that dollar sign on it, your, your back pocket starts to feel a little bit painful, right? Gets a little lighter, okay? And these menu engineers will advise against listing items on the menu from least to most expensive because that focuses the consumer on price. But what they do instead is they mix up the items, making it hard to find the price. And thereby encouraging the customer to emotionally commit to something before finding out what it costs. How many of us have ever done that? Yep. But honestly, I think my favorite strategy of all of the different menu engineers that are out there is putting that one absurdly expensive item on the menu. They're not expecting you to buy it. But by having everything else less expensive, it seems cheap. And we buy it. And probably paid higher than market value for it. See how this works? They sneak in with an idea that seems cheaper or less expensive, and we buy into it. And they gain advantage, they gain our trust. And they will be from among the brethren. Not, I'm not saying that it, we, have, we have someone here specifically at Boulevard, by the way, so don't go looking around trying to draw and quarter somebody that's here this morning. Okay, that's not what we're saying. And Peter's point through all of this is, you've made your choice. You chose to believe eyewitnesses. You chose not to believe made-up fairy tales and myths and fables. You've chosen to believe in God. God will do his part. You do yours. Be diligent in your walk. Love the truth. Be a people of God's own possession through all of this. Don't succumb to the belief that this is a new experience that we're going through. It's not. <coughs> 
Whatever we're dealing with today, whether it be as a church, whatever you're dealing with today, whether it be as an individual, someone has dealt with it at some time historically. This isn't meant to be depressing that there's nothing new under the sun, guys. This is meant to encourage us. It's meant to strengthen us and give us assurance of the God that we serve. It encourages us to be who God's calling us to be. And once we, and I believe this with all my heart, guys, once we have fully embraced the idea that this, we're not undergoing any kind of new experience, our understanding of God will get so much greater and we will understand that he is gonna handle his end of things while at the same time, we're gonna more joyously move into doing what he expects us to do. It's not something that's brain surgery. It's actually very simple. How many of us believe that God knows how to rescue the righteous? And if we believe that God knows how to rescue the righteous, does that not, in fact, change the way we live? Does that not encourage us to know that while we may be struggling with something or doing, having a trial at this point, that there's someone else that's also going through that exact same thing? And that he's put us here to encourage one another through all of this? He knows how to right, rescue the righteous from temptation. That means he also knows how to do the work that we're not qualified to do. But he also knows that we are qualified to do the work that we are qualified to do. So let's not find ourselves trying to do God's job here, guys. Let's just be who he's called us to be and have simple trust in him. He will be what he says he will be, and he will do what he says he will do. Take comfort and courage from that. Justice has a song that we're going to stand and sing, Have Thine Own Way, is what he selected this morning. And boy, what a powerful song to sing after reading what Peter has just described to us about what God does. Are we truly willing to let God have his own way? I will be honest with you. I'm a control freak in all of the ways. My wife will gladly amen that, but she's not going to. Thank you, love. And I do struggle with letting God be God and being content with how he chooses to operate and work in my life. Pray for me on that. I need him. I'm also encouraged knowing that if I'm this way, one of you is too. And it's not just Nick. But this is why we do what we do. This is why we gather so often together, to gain courage and encouragement from one another. That as we make the vow to let God have his own way, we grow stronger together as his people. What if Noah had decided that he wasn't going to let God have his own way? It was an example from the text, right? Think he'd be taking swim lessons real quick? Can we make the promise to each other that we will be that? That we will let God be God and we'll just be his people? Can we make that vow today as we stand and sing?